welcome to Native Yoga Toddcast. My name is Todd McLaughlin, and I will be your host. If you would like to learn more about our upcoming live stream yoga classes, workshops, teacher trainings, and or our online yoga studio, please visit us at nativeyogacenter.com. Thank you. Sit back, relax, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Get ready to hear a wonderful conversation about anatomy with one of the pros in the field, David Kyle. Uh, I've had a chance to meet David quite a few years ago, and so I was really, really excited that he agreed to uh, jump on this podcast. I really recommend you check him out. I like to give this information at the beginning so that you um, either write it down or you can come back early in the in the episode and um, check him out on his website at yoganatomy.com. And that's spelled, uh, well, www.yoganatomy.com. Uh, he has a lot of online courses that can help, uh, well, anybody who's interested in learning yoga, but probably very specifically toward yoga practitioners. Um, he's got an amazing book called Functional Anatomy of Yoga that's been written to make it easy for you to learn anatomy and apply it to your yoga practice. And that can be found on Amazon. You just type in Functional Anatomy of Yoga. Um, and then also you can, people that want to learn their muscles, there's a website called 3dmusclelab.com, which he also recommends as a, a great way to get interactive with it. So, well, let's go ahead and get David here on the line, on the phone, and get started with our conversation. I really hope you enjoy. I had a great time talking with him. Check it out. Here we go. Welcome, David Kyle. David, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good, good, good to talk to you, Todd. Same, man. I'm really excited to have a chance to catch up with you. Uh, I'd like for our listeners to have a chance to get to know you and uh, a little bit about your history and and your field of expertise. Um, if I can do a a little introduction for you before I'll hand it over to you, but I, I've had the pleasure of uh, practicing with you and or taking some of your classes and you're an you're an anatomy professional in my opinion and you have uh, an, a great ashtanga yoga practice and history with practice and teaching and um you know I'm curious how how and and uh I bumped into you long before I actually officially met you in 2000 when you were teaching anatomy at uh, Educating Hands at a massage school in Miami, it wasn't until later that I pieced together that that was you. Really? Um, yeah, I was going to massage school, and I think you were teaching the anatomy courses in the evening. Does that? Yes, yes, I, I was. Yeah. yeah. Can you um, can you give us a little bit of a, a history of your getting involved in the world of body work, anatomy, and yoga? Uh, yes, uh, I'll try to keep it to the short-ish version of it, um, because it's, it's kind of long and winding. Um, I, I mean, I, I started doing yoga when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working, I was working at a, a restaurant called Artichoke, which was, uh, Sunny Isles, Miami, kind of North Miami beach kind of area. Yeah. And, um, uh, one of the patrons there was, a Tai Chi teacher and he, his office, he was a chiropractor as well. So his office was like two blocks from my house. So 
I started taking Tai Chi classes with him. You know, we, he, he was kind of one of my first mentors. And, um, uh, so I, I studied Tai Chi with him, but, um, we'd also hang out in the afternoons and he teach, he taught me yoga, you know, like more classical Hatha yoga, like, uh, nice. Shivananda style. Yeah. 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 And then fast forward, you know, I went to university after that and, um, I did, a, I did do some practice while I was in university, but I, I would hardly call it uh, consistent. And then I left university. I, I actually have a business degree. Um, and when I left, I, I knew I didn't really want to work like corporate America or anything like that. That was definitely not my style. I was, I was definitely more new agey bent than that. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. So I, I, somewhere along there, I decided I wanted to be an acupuncture physician. And so I decided as soon as I left university, I moved back down to Miami and, um, I did, I, I did, I did get a, a, a real job. I called it a real job, like an office kind of job. Yeah. Um, which of course I didn't really like. Uh, but while I was doing that, I decided to go to massage school and I thought it was going to be a segue into going to acupuncture school. Mm. This is in 97. And, um, once I got there, I was just like, I mean, I think because I had done so much of that slow movement between Tai Chi and yoga that I, I really, I had this deep appreciation for the body mm. without knowing any of the technical aspects necessarily. But mm-hmm. of course you learn things along the way, you know, as you do, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided I, you know, I was an overachiever, of course, while I was in massage school and I did my neuromuscular training and I actually finished that before I graduated. Wow. Blah, blah. Long, long story short, which is why I ended up, um, I mean, you know, Iris from yes. Educating Hands. And, yes. I, and I now remember us having this kind of conversation uh, the last time I saw you, which was a long time ago now anyway. I know. Yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Iris asked me to, if I wanted to come back and teach kinesiology, you know, it was the, the quote unquote shadow program at the time. And then of course the teacher dropped and then all of a sudden she really needed a teacher and she's like, do you think you can do it? I'm like, I'll, I'm willing to try. Nice. And it's kind of like, you know, she kind of chucked me into the deep end of the pool. Yeah. And it was going to be either sink or swim. And she she told me that ahead of time. Um, and thankfully I did not sink. Yeah. And that's, that's when I was, that's when I was teaching kinesiology, the study of muscles at educating hands, which was now getting into, that would be like 99 and 2000, 2001, 2002. I taught there. That's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and during that time is when I met somebody who had shoulder pain and I worked on them and then, and they gave me a yoga private and they, taught me ashtanga mm. nice yeah. and that was your first introduction to the started. nice yeah that's yeah cool. which blew my mind of course because i had been doing um shavasana between postures mm-hmm. and belly breathing and you know all, uh, com- the complete opposite version of of what at the yoga looks like so yes yeah that's that, awesome that's how the ashtanga part start started yeah that's really cool. I, I would imagine um, to go from, well, first to take the neuromuscular training while you're going to massage school, that's a pretty serious endeavor. I, I did take those courses with um, Judith Delaney. Is that who you studied with? Yeah, that's who I studied with and as well. She, she's a great teacher. That's that's a lot of anatomy Amazing. in a short amount of time. Like I, I found it challenging and um, 
and that was that was like you know 15 years after practicing and studying so i i would imagine um you really kind of had to dive in pretty serious and then to go from from you know taking classes to all of a sudden teaching anatomy i would imagine that probably was a great opportunity to even learn it that much more did you find that helped facilitate that process for you then or i mean yeah i mean i think you know i had been studying kinesiology as the student and then it was in essence being reinforced through the neuromuscular workshops while I was in class. Yeah. And I think the other thing is um, just kind of more to do with the way my mind works, if I can look at it objectively. Mm -hmm. Um, I have this way of seeing how things are interrelated Mm. and, and how they function. Like, I mean, I'm, you know, I was a kid who took apart bicycles and put them back together, you yeah, know, yes. without anybody, you know, telling me what to do or how to do it. Uh-huh. Stuff, stuff when I was a kid, you know, I was always tinkering around and stuff. You know, my, my, my father taught wood shop and metal shop and photography and graphics and, and all the, all the um, industrial arts in high school. Yeah. And I think all of that kind of, you know, rubbed off on me, so to speak. And so we had a garage full of junk stuff that I would take apart and put back together and mess around with and I it just kind of my mind just kind of sees these things I yeah. I'm, I'm very good visually inside in my mind as well uh-huh. um, I can visualize spaces and relationships whether it's off of a flat piece of paper or in the body so mm. it's the same 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 to me that's so, really cool yeah that makes- I, I think my mind was was lending itself to that information as mm. well. Just, mm. I didn't do anything about that. It just happened that way. I can not, yeah, that's really cool. I, I, as you were saying that, it made me think then in terms of uh, having an Ashtanga yoga practice and then being really interested in the nuts and bolts, as you say, or in terms of like the, the body <laughs> and the anatomy that, that I could see where that's, that's a whole lifetime's worth of, um, you know, material to, to, to get excited about. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, you know, I often say in workshops, you know, that the study of anatomy is as big and vast as the study of yoga is, mm. you know, two very complicated, um, systems, uh, or approaches or ways of, and they're obviously totally different, but, um, yeah, there's, there's lots of opinions on it. There's disagreement about things, you know, and there's, there's some basic facts that go in there, but, um, two very, very big subjects that's to try to tackle i hear you and on, on that note if someone listening uh has a yoga practice and feels intimidated to learn anatomy um because because of what a large subject it is um what is a good entry level step they can take to get inspired and and on that note i i think it'd be a great time to maybe mention your your courses because um you know, I, I feel like this is something that when people look at anatomy, it's it, they hear the foreign language element. They, it seems like there's a there's there's so many words to even learn to get familiar yeah. with being able to communicate in the language of anatomy. Um, what is something that you would recommend to someone who's new to it and wanting to learn more and and a, and a good way to do that? Well, I, I I dare say I don't. I wouldn't recommend most anatomy books. Um, certainly I, I can, you know, plug my own stuff, um, yes, you know, on, on the yeah. website, of course, yeah. the basics of applied anatomy, you know, I, my, my whole ethos around 
presenting anatomy has been about making it as simple and as understandable as possible for everyone. And I mean, even, even the book I wrote, there was, there was a lot of, I'll, I'll not say argument, but um, heated discussion between me and the publisher who happens to be in England about the tone and the style of the writing that I did. And I, I basically, in the end, I was like, well, either it's this style and that style being uh, like a little bit more like spoken words, like, like you and me sit down mm-hmm. at the coffee shop and mm-hmm. this is kind of how I would say it to you. Yes. Where I, I try not to, he wanted, you know, of course, all of the charts and the, let's get the, um, you know, the anatomical position and, um, the, um, uh, what are they called? Coronal, the, the planes of movement and all, all this stuff is supposed to be upfront in an anatomy book. Yes. And I said, not mine uh-huh. because, you know, going back to what you said, it's like the moment people start to see all of the other language that they have to learn. It's not very exciting, and it just feels like this daunting task. I, I know that well, and um, I never wanted to do that to anybody. I, yeah. I, you know, with, with, with a book, at least, I wanted to write one that people you know, might actually want to read, maybe yes. even, in, dare I say, enjoy reading it. So uh-huh. that's, that was the approach I took with it, and it's, you know, it's how I teach the workshops. It's not like, you don't need to know all the names of all of the parts of pieces mm. to understand concepts and principles. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the concepts and the principles approach is much more useful, especially to yogis. Mm. You know, you'll, you'll kind of, my, my sense is, you know, you can add on more and more of the details and the language over time as you understand it and get more curious about it. Then you start to look up stuff. And then those names start to sink in and it allows you to kind of look at things more specifically. But yes, you know, I mean, I tell yogis, you don't need to know anatomy in, in this formal sense, mm-hmm. but you need to know it in the felt sense experience of it. Like you need to, you need to know what your body is doing. Yes. You don't need to name it. Doesn't change anything if you yeah. know the name of what muscle just contracted or not. And nor should you be practicing that way anyhow. Mm. Where you're overthinking it and yeah, trying to trying I, to put the words on all the muscles that are bending and stretching and make it too heady. Yeah, I mean, then yeah. it becomes you know, um, yeah. you know, more thinking than practicing. And I I think that's you know I tend to be analytical anyway. I mean, I get this question often about, you know, you know, well, what, what, what muscles contracting while you do that? And, you know, I have to stop and think about it if you were going to ask me in a workshop, you know, I mean, yeah, because it's like, I don't know, it's not something I normally think about if I were practicing. Yeah. I don't wonder what, what muscles contracting <laughs> while I'm contracting it. I don't need to. Yeah. What, you know, I don't know what the point would be. Would you think there's, um, in, in terms of if we were to make a critique of, say, an Ashtanga practice versus an Iyengar-style practice, would you say that there is maybe the Ashtanga element has that kind of uh, maybe importance put on just 
moving with the breath and not getting too overly heady about things. Whereas maybe from a Nyingar perspective, I know every teacher is totally different, but right. sometimes in Nyingar's classes, I, I, uh, I felt like um, there was this incredible detail placed on all of the anatomical terminology and movements and it became very heady. Do you, do you feel like that is out some, from some I an think, angle that you're coming from in, in relation to that? I mean, it's certainly not, it's not necessarily relative to Iyengar because you could, I think you could make an argument that learning your anatomy first mm. and then trying to move your anatomy in that very detailed way may end up leading you to the very same place mm-hmm. in the end as not knowing any anatomy and just going with the movement and then learning, you know, your body along the way. Mm. So I, I try, I, I think of, I mean, since you brought up those two styles, you know, to me it's more like, does form follow function or does function follow form? Mm, good point. And Ashtanga is more like form follows function. And by form, we mean, you know, let's call, let's say alignment, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. As your tissues open, as the joints open, as all of that, as your body changes, then the form starts to look more quote unquote. Uh, I, I mean, I'm really doing square, scare quotes here, more correct, whatever mm-hmm. that is, mm-hmm. or more, into what everybody has agreed is the correct alignment mm. or what most people have agreed is, which mm. is a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a rabbit Good point. hole. That's a rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think it's kind of form follows function, whereas Iyengar is more function follows form. So you establish the most correct form possible and let the function of the tissues happen as a result of that. Mm. And, some of the, you know, you could just go, well, stylistically, I'm more Bauhaus and form follows function, <laughs> you know, and it just appeals to me. Yeah. So that's a, a I don't, I, I try not to do it as right or wrong, but I do appreciate how um, Ashtanga and focus on breath and movement and less detailed thought in the mind from the beginning. Mm. Um, works yeah i mean that that's what worked for me but there's nothing really wrong with doing it the other way yeah yeah it makes sense that we get attracted to a a specific way of doing things based on our kind of learning ability and if we're lucky enough to get exposed to it you know like right, have right. the access that's cool um so yeah i liked how you mentioned that from the practitioner side that it's not necessarily absolutely important to know all the names and all the complicated uh, terminology associated. When you work with yoga teachers, um, how important do you think it is for yoga teachers to learn anatomy? Um, I think there's a, a definitely an added level of importance there. Mm. And I think... Because there's two basic places where people are interested in knowing about their anatomy as a yoga practitioner. When they're injured Mm, or when they can't do a posture. They're wondering what's restricting them, what's preventing them from being able to do this. And that's where people tend to investigate. And who are you going to ask first when you're in that investigating mode? Your teacher. That's right. And from the teaching point of view, the anatomy allows you to have a more objective perspective on the student. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how I think about it. Yeah. It's like, I have my own experience of doing postures 
but that's my body doing it. Yeah. You know, can you, can you know enough anatomy that when you watch somebody move, you see how they need to do it? What's preventing them specifically from doing it in this moment relative to where they're coming from and where they're going to? Mm. Because, you know, the technique that you give them right now, let's say, or the obstacle that's in their way anatomically will not necessarily be the anatomical that was there three years ago or will be there in two more years. Mm. It's going to change. And so the anatomy keeps, uh, keeps sort of allowing you to um, draw off this more objective point of view of what somebody else needs. Nice. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of think about these things yeah. now and again. <laughs> <laughs> You've had a few years to mull this over. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I like to deconstruct my deconstruction. <laughs> <laughs> how, how has your study of anatomy informed your own personal practice of yoga in terms of like say today or... Um, you know, when in this now, after having a, a lot of time to study, to, to teach and, and learn all, you know, get that enriched quality that comes from teaching it also practicing it, having, you know, a firm grounding and, and putting the time in to the practice and, and then having that evolution occur, um, how do you feel like, um, now when you practice your understanding of anatomy, informs your practice stay with us we'll be right back welcome to the alchemy of natural healing i'm your host laurel dewey true healing is an alchemical process meaning it must transform you on all levels body mind and spirit what affects one affects all three true healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. You know, I, I kind of think of it in a, uh, I'll say it like a circular way, mm. meaning, you know, my personal experience of practice informs my understanding of anatomy, my understanding of anatomy. And, it, and I don't mean this in, again, in, in a labeling kind of way, Yeah. but, but my understanding of anatomy then informs the experience I have of my own body. Mm. Like it, you know, it colors it or it, you know, it adds, you know, another level of saturation to it or yes. yeah. something like that. And then that of course, feeds the experience, which then feeds the understanding. Mm. And it's kind of circular in that, in that kind of way. So it's kind of like both practice and anatomy as an experience. Um, they just keep feeding each other. Mm. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It's like a, it allows for a little bit more, I don't know, broader, it feels like to me anyway, a broader experience of my body mm. because there's not, there's not that many like mysteries of like, what, what is it? What was that? Right. You know, like, so whatever, whatever it is or whatever that moment happened, 
something happens that maybe it's a little click or something or a pop or not a bad one necessarily, but just, you know, a sound or something doesn't feel right or feels tight. It's like, it's almost like there's this instant assessment that happens and recognition of what's there. Mm. And then, you know, that's it. But, but it's a known thing. It's not something that then takes me off track in terms of like, what was that? Oh my God. Did I just hurt myself? Did I not hurt myself? Did I run it up? Maybe I shouldn't be practicing. Should I practice right now? (laughs) And and it doesn't trigger the mind thing. (laughs) Yes. That's a good, that's a good point. I I would imagine that, you know, coming into the subject, it feels like, whoa, how could I learn all this? And then maybe at the time you spend enough time with it that, like you said, I feel that sensation in my knee. That's my meniscus as opposed to, I feel that sensation in my knee and I, what is that? I don't know. So I, I, I think that makes sense where you, if you have yeah. enough, enough uh, kind of understanding that maybe it isn't as mysterious, like you said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, with, with, um, with the pose Chaturanga Dandasana, which is the four limb staff pose. So maybe an even simpler terminology, like a, a low push up, um, which we get to do quite a bit in Ashtanga yoga. Um, what can you recommend to people to do to maintain shoulder health if they have a shoulder issue and they're in terms of the, the world of alignment and anatomy? This is such a popular topic. Yeah. Um, it really is. Um, two, two keywords bring people to my website more than any other. One, one is Chaturanga wow. uh, and, and or shoulder pain. They're, they're both high up there. And the other one is sit bone pain. Mm. Um, which seems to extend beyond the yoga world. But anyway, um, I, I actually just, and I don't, I don't really mean this as a shameless plug, but I, I have a couple of really good articles on the website. And there's obviously there's no cost for looking at articles on my website. Nice. Um, but we just did a really big article on the shoulder. Um, mm. And there's a number of them. If you go to the articles and click the search bar and type in Chaturanga, um, you can get as much detail as you want, to be quite honest. Yeah. But I'll say this, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll make it as succinct as possible. Okay. My sense of you know observation of students doing chaturanga over many years, many students, um, everybody, it, there's a tendency to focus on the do's and the don'ts and the alignment aspect of it. And I don't think any of them are wrong, you know, whether it's the shoulders dipping down and forward or you don't let, you know, your your body go below your elbows. All of these things are totally appropriate at the right time for the right people. Mm -hmm. Um, But what's typical, what I find is most commonly missing is stability of the scapula. Mm. And so for the last 10 years, I've been on it. Like I'm a big fan of serratus anterior, (laughs) um, which is a muscle (laughs) that lies under the shoulder blade and against the rib cage. For those of you who are just listening, uh, you can, you can Google it, of course. Um, I, because, you know, in Chaturanga, this is where we see the most amount of winged scapula, you know, where the shoulder blades pop up off the back. And what that says to me is the shoulder blade is not stabilized or, uh, or more specifically serratus isn't engaged enough. Mm. And what happens when the shoulder blade isn't engaged or, or that muscle is not engaged and the shoulder blade isn't stabilized enough is that the shoulder blade moves out of, let's say, a more, a, a more optimal position. Mm. And then the smaller muscles at the shoulder joint 
like the rotator cuff muscles, which are the ones that take a lot of the, the brunt of shoulder misalignment, um, they end up working harder than they should. Mm. In other words, when your shoulder blade gets out of position, of course, that means your shoulder joint is not in its optimal position. And you put the rotator cuff muscles, it could be biceps tendon as well. It's not like I'm not discarding any other yeah. tissues that could get injured, yeah. but you put the rotator cuff muscles at a mechanical disadvantage to do what they're designed to do. Mm. And so the more often you do that, the more repetitively you do that, the more likely you're going to injure something. Mm-hmm. And so instead of, and most people, you know, it's hard to kind of come back to, it's like, to me, I always go back to the foundation. Well, what's the, if the shoulders running into trouble, what is the trouble? You know, is it stable? Is it strong enough? Mm. You know, what happens oftentimes is people are not strong enough to do a low chaturanga or low push-up like chaturanga. And so all kinds of muscles fire up and turn on that. Of course they would to to a degree, but they're doing it to a higher degree than they should need to Mm. because the foundation or stability in the shoulder girdle isn't there yet. Gotcha. That makes sense. So I kind of go from yeah. from the inside. I, I'm big on intrinsic first, and serratus anterior is definitely more kind of like a hugged in inside kind of muscle, even though it's it's on the rib cage, but it's like tucked under the shoulder blade. It's kind of deep. Mm. You know, I, I include it as one of um, part of my psoas of the upper body uh-huh. uh, muscles. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's cool. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a hard one for people to find. They don't realize. I mean, probably a number of people are using it already, but using it in chaturanga is complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Do you have an exercise outside of chaturanga apart from coming down just maybe really slow into the chaturanga, not real deep, maybe having the knees on the ground and pulling the elbows in? Are there other key areas that you encourage people to work the, that strengthening of the serratus? Absolutely. Um, um, for the Ashtangis, it starts with acum. Uh-huh. Arms above the <laughs> head. Yeah, exactly. And it's like how you bring your arms above your head, what you turn on when you bring your arms above your head, mm. when you fold forward and you put your hands on the floor, mm. where... Do you push away into the earth? There's a whole bunch of places to turn on serrated Mm. before you ever get to Chaturanga. And I think that's what gets... Everything needs to be held in context. Mm -hmm. You know, like, no pose lives by itself. You know, if you get to a pose and you can't do it, then what I get people to do is reflect back in the sequence and figure out what they what they're missing there that's not allowing them to do this, and that that's also true for um, whether it's just simply strength. By the time you get to a certain point, I mean, not that a total beginner on their first day should have enough strength to do chaturanga just because they did sun salutation in a particular way. Right. But in this case, the strength is like, okay, well, how do I develop this muscle to turn on? in a way that helps me when I get to Chaturanga. Mm. That, that's the way I look at it in its bigger picture, rather than yep, yep. only trying to find it in the pose. Some poses lend themselves to that more, 
some less. Yeah. Chaturanga for me is on the left side. Uh huh. And, and as much as there is, like all of that technique, you know, putting your knees down, hugging the elbows, all of those things that are good and useful as long as it includes waking up serratus anterior, mm-hmm. in, in my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that seems like a pretty sound approach. <laughs> I, maybe, maybe that's a skill that comes with, with years, I, years of practice in terms of when we see the, the eagerness that comes out of wanting to create a, a, a cool shape and a, a good pick and, uh, you know, that type of thing or, or, uh, that, that not really honing in on those simple, the details that you're talking about, the very, very beginning of movement. So I, I, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, uh, yoga is inviting and attractive because of the shapes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. Um, as long as, you know, we encourage our students to go deeper, mm-hmm. you know, which of course we all want to do. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, sometimes we drag them <laughs> kicking and screaming and, <laughs> and, and sometimes they really have no desire. They just, you know, want to take pictures of pretty shapes, yeah. you know, it's, it's also okay. I, I can, I can, I, based on your answer to that question, I feel like this other question I have for you, you might've just already answered it, but I'm going to throw this out there anyway. <laughs> um, okay. if, if you analyze the Ashtanga, um, method within the primary and the second series, uh, is there something that you feel that should be removed or added? Do you, do you have a, a feeling that it's all, absolutely complete, especially if you approach it the way that you mentioned in terms of that deep engagement from the very first, you know, inhale, um, or, you know, after having time, time on the mat for a few years now, are there things that, you just kind of look at it and go, I just don't think that should be there, <laughs> or, 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 or I really think this should be added. But what are your, how, how do you approach that nowadays as you as you go through your practice? Um, I think I wouldn't say that anything should categorically be taken away or added, mm-hmm. um, and just generally speaking. Um, primary and second together make for a a fairly well balanced general practice. Mm. Um, I I think there's a couple of thoughts that come up for me. One is um, nobody's meant to really do primary series for 10 years. Mm. I mean, it's not, I don't think that's realistic. And I think when you think of the practice and you think of the sequences, as I was mentioning, you know, in terms of context, you have to contextualize where the practice comes from, when it was developed, and what was going on in people's bodies in that location, area, time. Mm. And because um, if there's one thing I think that comes up more than anything for everyone is, you know, for, for, for beginners especially, are the lotus postures, you know, and you know, those are the ones that perhaps could get the best argument for temporarily being removed Mm. um, or a preparation being added Mm -hmm. for those because contextually, you know, the practice was developed in a place where everybody essentially sat on the floor cross-legged. And so 
hips being open to do something like a full Lotus was way more realistic to the average person than it is now coming to the West where we sat in chairs for years or, you know, we have, you know, genetically speaking, even it's not in our DNA, so to speak. I don't mean that quite literally that, you know, Lotus lives in your DNA, although it it can for some people in terms of bone shape, of course, Mm. but that's a very small percentage of the population. So I think we need to hold that context and go, okay, if I want to do Lotus, what needs to open? Why can I not do Lotus? And why should I not be forcing myself into something like Lotus mm. so that I, you know, cause knees, back and shoulders are, that's forget just Ashtanga. That's the population. That's where the most injuries happen. Yeah. Knees, back and shoulder. Right. Mm-hmm. So knees are high on the list. Um, so, you know, it's a place where I, I when I see the person with the really tight hips and I, I do, I give them preparation before they try to do their Lotus at a, at a minimum, at a minimum. So mm-hmm. I do make a few sort of structural changes, but more in, in the sense of um, preparing somebody to do something rather than categorically removing it or adding it. Yeah. Nice. You know, like, yeah, like makes, we were saying, you know, yeah. sometimes it's just a matter of patience, Mm-hmm. you know, that's a good point. Do you, Nowadays, when you're instructing or, or teaching someone yoga, do you stay very close to the um, the mastery element before moving on, or or are you working with? Uh, it sounds like you said yes, definitely do some modifications in terms of the lotus. Are you are you kind of balance doing a balancing act between those two kind of approaches when when helping someone with their practice? Um, yes, I, I think so. I'm, you know, I don't give everybody a preparation. Yeah. Only the person that needs it. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, I I don't know. To me, the, the mandate that I feel in terms of presenting even Ashtanga Mm. is to teach the student that's in front of me. Mm -hmm. Period. Full stop. Yeah. Um, I went to Mysore enough years and spent enough time there to watch lots of modifications to postures and sequence and, you know, all kinds of stuff yeah. that is not portrayed in the sort of, you know, party line, so to speak. Uh, of, yes. This is the sequence. This is how it is. This is how it must be done. <laughs> yeah. So I, I kind of take it as like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, one, I'm going to modify as few things as possible and then ask the question of why would I need to modify this and how is this modification going to lead this person to be, to be able to do the fullest expression of this posture over time. Mm. And I mean, really, there's only, there's only two postures that I, that I prep people for when they need it again, mm-hmm. which is Lotus and backbend basically. Mm. That's it. Gotcha. That's yeah. cool. I hear you. That's awesome, David. I what, I know there's been a little bit of, um, the last time I got to see you, which was a long time ago, I really enjoyed your answer about, um, I, these are words that, again, if people aren't familiar with anatomy, maybe we could do, I could try, or you, you could, uh, I know you could uh, explain maybe in a way that people can understand it through hearing, but I, I really loved your answer regarding 
back bending and the nutation and counter nutation of, oh, the, of the sacrum. Right. And I, I guess with someone who who's like, what words does that mean? But I guess to try to paint a picture, if there's the pelvis and then you have the triangular bones of the sacrum, that I guess we've heard this lore that when we're really young, they're very movable. But as we get older, perhaps maybe they lock tighten up over time. And and then there was the debate or argument, not I want to say argument, the debate about um, in a back bend, will I find some deeper space for my back bend by tucking the tailbone through and and moving the sacrum in that way? And and I loved how I loved your answer about that. Could you give us a little bit of insight regarding backbending and and do you attempt to manipulate the movement of your <laughs> sacrum sacroiliac joints? <laughs> um, wow, I, I I don't know if my answer is the same today as it was then, but I'll That's cool. I'm guessing it, it, it's probably similar. All right. Um, yeah. When, I mean, whenever we talk about the sacroiliac joints. Um, people need to keep in mind that the average person, their SI joint moves about three millimeters. Mm. That's, that's like, you know, an eighth of an inch mm. max. That's mm. like, you know, it's not much. Most people don't feel it. They wouldn't know it when it moves. Certainly people who are more hypermobile, um, they tend to feel it move and it moves more than three millimeters. You know, three millimeters is average. So there's mm. less and there's more. Mm. Um, I, I, there's there's two reasons I, I kind of try to dissuade people from talking about nutation and counter nutation, which are the literal movements of the sacrum relative to the pelvis that's around it. Mm. Um, uh, trying to make something like that happen in a backbend. Um, one, because most people don't feel it. Two, it's a passive joint, mm. meaning, you know, it's not like your elbow where you have a biceps that clearly crosses it. When you contract your biceps, your elbow bends. Mm. You know, the sacroiliac joint is um, influenced by the forces that surround it and the, and the forces come from movements that surround it. Mm. So when, when people say to tuck the tailbone, what, what they're implying is that you make space in your lower back. And that part I agree with completely. Mm. That's where most people feel the pressure, compression, whatever that sensation is in their lower back, maybe even just straight up pain, Yeah. which I'll just bring it back to. That's the reason why it's one of the two postures that I actually prep mm. is to avoid that. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the bigger point is you're not going to make up for the tension that surrounds your pelvis and prevents you from doing your back bend by moving your SI joint three millimeters, mm -hmm. it's just not going to do it. Yep. It's no, there's no way anatomically that that's what makes the difference. That's not to say that it, whatever action somebody is doing in their back bend, by thinking about that, if it makes it feel better, I'm okay with that. Yeah. But when, if we try to get really literal, I mean, here's the other reality, Todd, is and I've reached out. There's a guy who um, has done probably the most amount of research on the sacroiliac joint. Uh, I'm not mistaken. His name's Fleming. Uh, yeah. Um, and I reached out to him to ask about, you know, how to a, you know, potentially test 
mm. what's happening in the back then to the SI joint. Mm. And, you know, to be honest with you, the way they test these things is, you know, they take volunteers and some of them, they, they like, they embed like basically like BBs mm. <laughs> underneath the skin and near their bones. And then they put them into position. The, huh. the thing is either way through the conversations and yeah. research, um, we've never found anybody who has measured what happens to the SI joint when someone is in a backbend. Mm. That's never been measured as far as I know. If somebody out there hears this yeah. and knows of somebody who did a backbend <laughs> and measured SI joint and they actually wrote a paper on it and it was <laughs> relatively controlled, please send it my way. <laughs> yeah. And I say all of this yes. to, to say, I have my theory about what happens in a backbend, but mm. it's just a theory. Yeah. So when people tell you, oh, when you do X, Y, and Z and you tilt your, you nutate or counter nutate, they can go back and forth around it. Is when you do this in your backbend, X, Y, and Z happens. They don't know that to be true. Uh-huh. That might be what it feels like to them. I cannot argue with that. Yeah. But there's no objective sort of <laughs> perspective on it. Yeah. Which is fine too. Yeah, it's, like, it's kind of like my same argument of you don't need mm, to know necessarily. Mm-hmm. You need to know what it feels like. You don't need to know the name. You don't need. Oh, technically, it's doing mutation. You know, <laughs> whatever. Does it feel better or worse? Yeah. Is it helping you or not? Yeah. Great, <laughs> great point. I, I love that answer. I, if I remember correctly, you, you still you still are on a similar page. So I like that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Consistent <laughs> or, or the, like you said, the information hasn't been, uh, um, presented to show proof that there is, you know, to one way or the other. And, um, which I think is a great point because, because sometimes what I hear from medical professionals when they make a critique of say a yoga class or what a teacher might say is, is, you know, how can you prove that? Or, you know, to make blatant <laughs> statements that, that aren't necessarily been tested, I think is something to bring attention to so that we work within the boundaries of, of truth or, or at least, you know, sub, having a, a study of it. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Truthiness. Truthiness. <laughs> yeah. <all right. laughs> Correct. Difficult to say there is such a thing. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I, <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I, I, I don't want to leave it like everything needs to be proven in a Western scientific way either. Yeah. It does yeah. not. It yeah. does, absolutely does not. You know, our experiences are real mm-hmm. and meaningful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, I, I'll never forget the first yoga and science conference I went to, Eddie Stern, in New York. Um, or, or he has done a couple of them in a couple of other places as well. But at, like the, at the very first one, it was, you know, he, he gave, he, Eddie speaks really well. And yes. he was like, we don't have to prove any of this. You've been practicing. I've been practicing. I know the benefits. You know the benefits. We all know the benefits. <laughs> yeah. But it can be helpful to the population at large when you start interacting with doctors and physical therapists that mm. there is some body of work that explains why yoga works mm-hmm. rather than just taking everything on faith. Yep. Yep. But it's not necessary <laughs> to prove it. That's a, that's a good point. I, I remember uh, yeah. when, when, when taking uh, 
Judith Delaney's uh, NMT courses, I uh, sometimes in the massage world, you know, you can get um, a little bit of a new agey approach where, uh, you know, someone will just say, oh, you know, you're just having an issue and I can fix it. And um, whereas I remember Judith being very clear right up front that like, look, you know, tell them to seek out medical advice and let's let's start looking into this and make sure that we're, you know, finding out everything that possibly could be could could be going on. And I, I really appreciated that sort of um, where there's the, you know, really working together with the medical community so that we can advance the professionalism of the career. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think exactly. that's pretty cool. Yeah. She, yeah. She, she's very good about that. I, I remember that as well. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so then I guess that brings me to another question. I've been, I've been hearing different debates over the years about, um, you know, headstand. What are your feelings about headstand and putting weight on the cervical vertebra? Um, well, it's funny. You know, my, my typical answer is even (laughs) though it's called headstand, it's funny. It's called headstand, but you're not supposed to put weight on your head. Mm. And then we have shoulder stand where most people do a neck stand and you're supposed to put the weight on your shoulder as mm. the name. <laughs> as, right. Good point. As we translate it, I should say. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I think most of the time it, a lot of these, these issues of, you know, should I do this pose? Should I not do this pose? There's always the exceptions, right? There are people who have, you know, cervical injuries or, you know, whether it's people with glaucoma who don't need to, who shouldn't go upside down at certain times and all this kind of, forget the exceptions for a moment, but they do exist. Yeah. Um, it comes back to, uh, well, it comes back to the muscle we already talked about, serratus. Mm. And if you can't stabilize your shoulder girdle properly, you're going to end up with more weight on your head. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I would say, I don't think that's a good thing to do mm-hmm. long term. Um, and especially not as a beginner, mm-hmm. you know, as you increase, you know, strength and abilities and control and understanding of your body, you may be able to, you may do some postures where you do temporarily put weight on your head and on your cervical spine. But I, I assume the question is more of that sort of general class kind yeah. of yeah. feeling to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean. No, I don't think beginners should be putting weight on their cervical spine and headstand. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't think they're supposed to, which brings us back to the sort of preparation and, you know, how how do I work in ways before I get to headstand so that I can do headstand without putting too much weight on my head? Yeah. That's how I ask the question. Nice. I would agree with you. I Good answer. <laughs> I, I have one more I'm glad, question. I'm glad you're liking my answer today, Todd. Well, yeah, because man. They, I, I love having this opportunity to get to chat with someone who really <laughs> studies this and puts a lot of time and energy into to, to, to learning. Um, you know, I have one more question for you. I really appreciate all your time here. Um, something that I came across lately was... Um, we were practicing Supta Kormasana, which um, that's uh, the sleeping turtle. And then to keep it really simple, or at least try to explain it, is a, a strong forward bend and the legs are externally rotated. 
And someone from the physical therapy angle brought up, you know, we don't really think loaded flexion is good for the body. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that all physical therapists are agreeing with this statement, right. but in this case, this person um, had brought this up. And so the, in the mentioning of, you know, why would you even do that if it's injuries to a large portion of the population? I guess I was just feeling the excitement of practice, the heat building element. My body was in feeling good. And I, I kind of my answer was like, well, I, I just... I just feel good sometimes when I do it and I, I haven't experienced any injury from it. So, um, but then I, I, I guess I was understanding though and appreciative of the fact of their inquiry regarding like, you know, if, if it's bad for your back, why would you do it? I just didn't really have a great answer <laughs> um, because it was feeling good for me. Can you give me any insight into how you <laughs> reconcile the physical therapy world with some of the advanced or yoga positionings that we encounter in Ashtanga yoga? Um, I, I mean, I mean the jet, the average, you know, physical therapist will give clamshells out like it's, you know, Halloween candy. <laughs> so like to all kinds of problems. So I, I you know, I, Sorry, I, did, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't really want to mean that as a dig against no, I, that, but it, it happens all the time. What, I understand what you mean, though. I don't think that was. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like trying to get everybody fit into a box. It, mm -hmm. it, it comes back. Uh, 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 there's two parts to this. One is, well, it's about the individual who's doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it's not about putting everybody into a box. Nobody should do this. Everybody should do that. Um, in terms of soup to kormasana. Um, if I use my own, my own line, which mm -hmm. is, okay, well, what has set you up in a way to allow you to do soup to Kormasana in a way that is relatively safe, that you're relative, you're, you're ready to do it, mm. you know, and as it is, you know, that pose in particular personally, and the little story that I have going around the sequence, mm -hmm. that is the penultimate posture in terms of um, transformation mm. of of the practitioner, mm -hmm. not 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 in one go, but yeah. over time, yeah. um, and and I say that because if you if you go back and you read you know the text about that particular posture, it's about stimulating the energetic system very specifically. Mm. Um, there's, there's also two versions of it, and they tend to get mixed up. There's Raja Supta Kormasana, which is where you put your, you actually do put your feet behind your head. Mm -hmm. And then there's just Supta Kormasana, where you cross your feet in front of your head. Mm. And I think too many beginners try to put their feet behind their head. Mm. And when you load that much pressure in, you know, into the hip mm -hmm. to try to get it to go behind your head, mm -hmm. The escape valve, mm -hmm. when you're sitting on the floor, is going to be your lower back. Mm -hmm. So the reason it hurts so many people's back to bring it around is because their hips aren't open enough. Mm -hmm. But they're not necessarily, you know, that wasn't it. Maybe that's not it in your case or my case, but in other people's cases, it yeah. is. Yeah. And so you have to look at where am I missing 
flexion at the hip joint, meaning are my hamstrings open enough, Mm -hmm. as well as my rotators that allow me to rotate my legs in that way. Mm. And am I doing the correct version for me? Yeah. That makes sense. That's cool, David. That's cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's something I've been wondering or just just was been mulling over lately. So I I appreciate your insight on that. Yeah. I mean, you know, keep in mind, yes, it'll put a lot of pressure into the low back. Mm -hmm. The question is whether you're prepared to dissipate that Mm -hmm. and or receive it in your body based on your ability. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another way I say it, just this is general to postures, it's like, no posture exists until we do it. Good point. It doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, yes, yeah. we know it's there and we've seen other people, do, but we're doing it. We're making it. Mm-hmm. We're the one interacting with it. It doesn't, the pose doesn't do anything to us. It's our relationship to getting ourselves into that posture or our way or our technique or our strength or our tightness that reacts to or responds to that position Mm. as a different way of thinking about it, you know, instead of looking for, you know, you know, just blame chaturanga kind of thing or, you know, it's like, well, how are you doing it? That's what matters. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Good insight, David, man. I, I I really, (laughs) uh, I, I hope that, uh, our, everyone that's listening, I, I really encourage you guys to, to check out your website, davidyoganatomy.com. And you have a ton of information on there and there's courses and, um, yeah. I appreciate you just taking time out of your day to, to speak with me and to, to donate some of your time for us to listen and, and get pumped about anatomy. <laughs> get excited. Go learn your anatomy now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's like eating spinach. Yeah, that's right. It's that simple. <laughs> Just learn it and everything will come into place. Yeah. 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 That's it. <laughs> oh man. Well, thank you so much, Dave. I really hope I, I know we're, you know, working under different terms these days in terms of moving around and I know you travel, sure. we're traveling a whole bunch and you're getting the opportunity to, to uh, be in one place and work with your virtual platform. Um, but hopefully things will kind of evolve here soon enough. And I would love to have you back here at our studio and that'd be awesome. Um, I just really thank you so much. And I, I really enjoy your insights. You're welcome, Todd. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, David. Take care. Have a great day. All right. You too. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Native Yoga Toddcast. We really appreciate it and we hope you enjoyed. Remember that if you'd like to learn more about upcoming classes, workshops, teacher trainings, and our online yoga studio, all of which you can access at nativeyogacenter.com, your support is greatly appreciated. Have a wonderful day.